Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This week, I'm in conversation with Dagmawi Wubshet, whose book, The Calendar of Loss, has had a really transformative impact on how I engage with the work of our elders and ancestors from the 1980s and 1990s. In our conversation, Dagmawi is talking about the future and how those of us who can never be sure that we have a future have a necessity to live fully in the now. We have a responsibility to do that. And so that made me think of my 2018 conversation with Mark Thompson, who's a longtime activist and advocate for black gay men in the UK. He's one of the original founders of Prepster, and he has a long history of community organizing and engagement. He co-founded, for example, Big Up in the late 1990s to respond to the sexual health needs of black queer men. Here's a clip from our 2018 conversation, which took place in Mark's home in Brixton. Do you want to elucidate for me what your experience was in the 80s? And I think, uh, yeah. Just bit of it. It was a big decade. It was a big decade. <laughs> well, I think I'd like to focus on the HIV crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there we'll, you know, there, we can go anywhere yeah, from yeah, there. Yeah. But I really want to understand and want other people to understand um, that environment. What was going on? Yeah, what was going on? Because I know I've I've read what I've read from that time, mm. and so I understand kind of what was going on in mass media, mm-hmm. which, from what I've gathered, was really focused on white people. It as far as HIV AIDS, is from yeah, what I've gathered, yeah, and so kind of I'd like to understand more what your experience was as a gay black mm. man when the AIDS crisis descended on. Like, okay, I mean I think that. It was presented as... It's an interesting one. Cause it wasn't even presented as, as a white gay or white person thing. It was presented as a gay thing. Right. And then gay, okay. red, white. Okay. okay. Pretty much what it does now. So, <laughs> and even when, I, even when I do reflective documentaries and stuff with people now, and there's still folk who like, let's, talk about, let's, let's make a documentary about the 80s, I'm always having to say to them, you know you're a black folk, right? And so he's like, could you get me some? And I'm like, here I am. So it's usually me. And off you go. Mm-hmm. You have to wait two weeks. And I came back and I got a positive result and blew my mind. It's like four weeks before Christmas. So you got a positive result in 1986. Just November. November 1986. Mm-hmm. 
when you were 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was six months old when you, re- when you received your positive results. I mean, I love doing workshops with younger gay men and, you know, and saying, you know, so how long have you been diagnosed and how old are you? And then drop in, I have a virus older than you. And I always think that's highly amusing. <laughs> um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> to try and tell me shit. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so pipe down, little one. Yeah, yeah. really. Okay. Right, okay. I've got uh, a virus older than you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got ID to prove that's it. gonna be the name of this this episode. And I I know that I was in, in the community. <laughs> Sorry, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I you have to laugh at this. No, shit, absolutely. Right? I mean, <laughs> shit. I mean, God, thirty years. I've got you know. I, I have to laugh at it. You've had right. HIV for thirty years. Thirty-two years. Thirty-two years. Mm. I've been diagnosed thirty-two years. Yeah. Oh, because of course you might have had it. Before. I might have had it before that. Right, not right. For, not much longer before that. I'm pretty sure how, when, where, and who. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I under, now I understand seroconversion illness, so I know all the signs and I can track back. Um, wow. So it, it kind of all makes sense, you know. But I do remember at the time, not many people in the in, in the black gay community because it was a black gay community. It wasn't a black queer community. Right. Right. Okay. Um, it wasn't, you know from all over the diaspora. It was African, Caribbean, and African. Um, usually second generation, third generation men who were black, British. Very different experience and very very smaller. And I remember nobody, I didn't know anybody. There was nobody to talk to about it. And I told one or two people. So, okay. Go, so, you got your diagnosis in November mm-hmm. and... You had no one to talk to about it. I told my mom. What did what was your mom's reaction? My mom's reaction was the best reaction in the world. She just said to me, "You might get knocked over by a bus tomorrow. At least I know what to do to support you and help you." Wow. That was it. Don't worry, you'll be fine. Of course, I know she probably broke down in pieces after. But of course, behind closed doors, yeah. Yeah, but she 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 <laughs> did what she needed to do, and even now, my mom is like, anyway, you know, on my case. But she, yeah, she was completely supportive. Wow. Mm. Okay, so then we can move on. So you then had, you told a few people told besides a few people. your mom. Mm-hmm. And your point is that there was not, I yeah. mean, there wouldn't have been any support services for There, were, there, were, there was, not for, not for who? For gay black men. No, no, no. There, there were one or two support services um, opening up, you know, the Landmark, the Lighthouse, um, which were usually to help people die. And to get through the day to day because people were dying. I mean, this is this is the thing. And if you're 17, 18, and you've got this hanging over your head, and you're young and you're pretty, and you're at college doing your A levels and you're about to go off to uni because you're smart, and then all of a sudden you're like, fuck, what am I going to do? Um, that's resilience. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there it is, defined. Bam. Um, so, yeah, so there were no, but I found, I did find support services when I needed them and I needed them for emotional support I was very fortunate I never got unwell um, I was never hospitalised the only time I got well was when I started HIV treatment funny enough like 17, 18 years later um, but I never got ill so I was really lucky but I did go to support services because I needed a sense of belonging and camaraderie and I knew in the black gay community the handful of people I told told other people and told other people. So before you knew it, I was not, I was marked with the virus. Right. And so did you feel like you didn't have any choice but to own it? No. Or God did no. you have a time where you were like, you didn't want anyone to know? Completely. I mean, I 
kept it, I tried to keep it really close to my chest and I would date people and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disclose, so I'm sure you're probably listening to this now. Um, and I would sit by the phone in dread when that phone would ring and I'd get, listen, we need to talk. And that happened a few times. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of my early 20s angry, scared. Um, I was, hated the black gay scene, hated the black gay community um, with a passion because they, they gossiped about me. They took my name and made it mud when they should have, at the time, should be supportive. Um, so yeah, there were men, I mean, that happened a few times where guys would call me, I'd see somebody and they'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, who told you? And then it, this person told them because they would look out for them. Right. That's like bullshit. So now I also... But I mean, people don't know. I get that now. I mean, I completely, right. I understand that now, but flash forward 30 years, I still get young queer men who have been diagnosed frightened about talking about their HIV right, 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 or also have had their status you know disclosed on their behalf mm-hmm. by other people and there's just saw something on social media a couple of days ago you know I know these horror stories exist still 30 years later so I found support I went to groups and drop-in centers because they were you know places to hang out you know, the staff were always lovely. You know, you could go there and you could be positive and it was safe. Get a little massage, you know, and hang out. And, but my, my issue, it wasn't an issue, but I always, I was young. So I was a lot younger than a lot of the people that were there. I was black, you know, and I wasn't ill and I wasn't dying. So when you enter that space, you're like, oh, you're a new volunteer. And I'm like, no, actually, I'm one of you. Um, just waiting. <laughs> I might be in that chair one day. Um, Went for a lot of therapy um, to kind of get myself sorted. But the outside world in, in the 80s around HIV and the early 90s was, was scary. It was a really, really frightening time because it was a spectre that was just hanging over us. Mm-hmm. And in, I knew one or two men who were positive, And then occasionally you'd hear that somebody had died, you know, mm-hmm. but it was all mysterious. And I'm, you know, I, I can sit here, I'm never going to say, scores and scores of my friends died. That didn't happen to me, right? I knew people that died. Um, I didn't know loads. I didn't lose lovers. Right, so it wasn't like this kind of, what we're used to seeing. I mean, if, you, if you've seen a normal horror. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what the age I cried my eyes out. Mm. But it's, and this is, I think it's true on some levels, in Angels in America and, and what have you. Um, but these are all very white narratives. Yeah. And it's, Everyone loses everyone. Yeah. So I think our story around the epidemic is just is yet to be told. Wow. If you look at if you you know what do you think is yet to be told about the epidemic that differentiates it from the mainly white narrative that we see? Just a simple. I mean, for me, it's just, if we look at it from a UK perspective, the simple story of right us, UK AIDS epidemic of us living through it right the fact the fact that there were the fact that there were one two three at least three or four organisations set up in the 1980s the fact that one of actually one of the first men diagnosed in this country was a black gay man really yes I will get more information for you because I'm going to put that in the show notes his name is Alan Warren he is he died a few years ago of cancer and wow say his name again Alan Warren Alan Warrond. That, that might be the wrong, wrong pronunciation, but I'll definitely check for it. Okay. And Alan, along with Jonathan Blake, were a couple of the first men diagnosed in this country. And 
Alan was my elder, to be fair, and I had a lot of time for him because he was this older, positive man who was stunning. I mean, I think he was a he was a dressmaker, and um, he went on to set up Black Liners, which was a HIV charity for for black for black African and Caribbean people. I'll send you a picture of that. I've got it in the archive somewhere. He set up and was involved in River House, which still runs to this day in West London because he lived in Hammersmith, so he wanted local services. And so there were men like that that I knew on the periphery um, of life. And then in the kind of late 80s, I got involved in Black Liners because I knew I was well, and so I wanted to do something. Um, and I got involved with that for a little while and then went off from there. Did you ever struggle with that wellness? Yeah. I had, I had a little moment of survivor's guilt in 94-ish, 95, um, which probably kind of like about 10th year of, of my diagnosis of wondering why I hadn't got ill. You know, what was it? What was I? And it wasn't what was I doing right or wrong. It just, it, it just weighed on me. Why you? Why me? And when you think why me, you think, when am I going to be next? You know what I mean? It must be just around the corner. So you were well, but... I can imagine at that time that everything must have felt so urgent. <laughs> yeah. As in, I have to live today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I dropped out of college. Right. You know, I, I was on a path to go and, and you know, study film and do a whole range of different things. You know, I was that kid in my family. Um, and it was, you've got to live now. You know, you just enjoy life. But it wasn't it wasn't throwaway. I think I got more throwaway in my 30s. Right, when you were like, I'm totally fine. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of that. Like, Fuck it, I'm going to be here. The meds work. Yay! You know, and, and yeah, there was much more risk-taking. There right. was much more putting myself on the edge. I think I was a little bit more cautious about taking risks with myself. But there was a sense of live now. But there was also a limitation put on my... I put on myself... Um, so I didn't invest. I, I, I didn't go to uni. I didn't study. I worked. Right. You know, I didn't save. Why would I? Why would, yeah. So that leaves you in a slightly different position when you're in your mid-40s, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there were opportunities that were afforded to me at the time that I didn't take because it would have meant disclosure. So there were things that you didn't do because you would have had to disclose that you were HIV positive. Yeah. I couldn't travel to the States. I was... In, I, I was... Sorry. You what? I couldn't travel to the States. It was, just, it was a travel ban. Really? Obama lifted it. There was a travel ban for donkeys years in the US. I had no idea. They don't talk about that often, do they? Well, we used to a lot, but it's been lifted. I mean, there are a number of countries you still can't travel to if you're positive. Um, up to this day. Um, usually in the Middle East. Um, but in, up to in the US... Is this even positive and undetectable? Yes. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could, yeah. There were some countries, but the US, it must be two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It was lifted, but back in the eighties, I don't think the ban was on then, but it meant it, it would have been meant a level of disclosure for me. So I didn't take up the chance. Wow. But you couldn't travel to the states if you're a positive person. That was a public health measure. I remember going to the states in. Oh, yeah. that makes sense because there was the patient zero was a flight attendant. Patient zero. Yeah, quote-unquote yeah, patient quote zero. Yeah. Yes, was this white uh, flight attendant mm. who I think was originally from Toronto. I might yeah, have gotten that incorrectly. Yeah. Mm. Um, I might have gotten that incorrect. Um, so that makes sense. You know, it's so funny that, that... 
I learned these things about HIV and AIDS, i.e. patient zero, and he mm. was a flight attendant, mm-hmm. and, and these esoteric descriptions of a time before me mm. then kind of come crashing into place when I speak to someone who was there and says, I couldn't fly to the States. And I go, oh my God, of course, because a flight attendant. So that's the first thing you would do. I mean, you were, you were, you were, you were living in a time where, you know, people were getting evicted out of their homes. Shit was being pushed through there. And that's happening here. This is happening here. This happened in the UK. Physical violence. Be, I mean, when I tell you that I would be frightened about somebody calling me up, I wasn't scared because, oh my gosh, this person's standing up on HIV. No, I'm frightened of physical violence here. Right. I'm frightened of threats to my family, you know, I, because that I know it happened to other people. You know, the irony of that, though, is that HIV is spread through blood, so you wouldn't physically assault someone Well, at that time, yeah. right? That's, it's kind of a tenuous irony, but you know what I mean, is that this, it speaks to the misunderstanding of what it was mm. and, like, the attendant navigation that you had to do. Yeah. And like understanding this, you know, you're of a generation, you're, you're the generation. But then if you also got your community that isn't welcome and accepting and loving yeah. you as well, that's a lot of work to do. So I sometimes go to myself, why the fuck did I go and do things like Big Up and Black Liners and Let's Rap and, you know, People of Colour Tent of Pride? Why did I do it? Why did I do it for my community? Mm. Because it was, there was anger. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was also going back to what I said. It's what I do, and hopefully you see that now what you've done has had such an impact. I hope so. I mean, I hope just by me by virtue of me sitting in front of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I I know that it has. I know that it does. Um, and it's one of those things. You know, my mom was always fond of saying, "You know, they're going to miss you when you're gone." Right? right. Which yeah. she usually said that to me about her. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.